Welcome to Irish Passport. Uh, let's do it. Welcome to the Irish Passport. I'm Tim McInerney. I'm Naomi O'Leary. We're friends. Can you welcome Naomi? Anwar Fad Tim. This is your passport to Irish culture, history and politics. Uh-huh. I'm recording. One, One two, two, three. three. Okay. everybody and welcome back to the Irish Passport podcast. Today we're bringing you the first of a two-part episode on one of our all-time most requested topics, the issue of Ireland's military neutrality. Yeah, people are sometimes surprised to discover that Ireland is one of the five EU member states to hold a policy of neutrality. Uh, the other ones, by the way, are Austria, Sweden, Malta and Finland. The meaning of neutrality, however, differs in each of these countries and can change over time. And this is certainly the case for Ireland too. Right. So even though Ireland has been neutral since the 1930s, what that actually means isn't spelled out. And debate about it, and even if Ireland really is neutral, um, have come up over the years, especially in more recent decades. The policy can be hugely politically sensitive, with memorable flare-ups over the issue during the Nice referendums of 2001 and 2002. Ireland was the only EU member state to initially reject the Treaty of Nice in 2001, largely because many voters feared it might affect the country's neutral status. Yeah, that treaty was passed only by a second revised referendum the following year, after the other EU member states accepted a declaration from the Irish government that said, I quote, In line with its traditional policy of military neutrality, Ireland is not bound by any mutual defence commitment. Generally speaking, neutrality is something that a lot of people in Ireland are very attached to, and currently the policy can only be changed by popular referendum. But the practical reality of Ireland's neutrality is often a bit more messy or less clear-cut. One infamous example was how the Irish government allowed United States aircraft to refuel at Shannon Airport during the Iraq War. In 2003, following the Nice Treaty affair, the then Fine Gael leader Enda Kenny actually suggested that, quote, Ireland is no longer neutral, we are merely unaligned. Ireland also participates in some defence cooperation projects in the EU, but they're quite, quite carefully chosen to dance around the policy. But at the moment, the European Union is gearing up for a big debate about defence and how to protect its interests in a world in which it may face growing challenges, while the global role of its ally, the United States, is in retreat. This was all made suddenly very concrete by the recent chaotic withdrawal of US forces from Afghanistan, which posed Ireland a very practical question. How do you get Irish citizens out of the country without planes that can fly there? We'll dig into how Ireland solved that conundrum, lay out the current reality of Ireland's military neutrality and the coming EU debate over the issue in our following episode, part two of this. So watch this space. Yeah, absolutely. It's a really interesting story. Uh, But before we get on to that, we have another interesting story. Uh, In this episode, we wanted to lay out the historical context for neutrality and take a closer look at Ireland's neutrality in relation to its post-colonial history. Right. So how did we get here in the first place? Considering that neutrality was adopted in the 1930s, you can probably guess, listeners, already that it's closely intertwined with the story of Ireland's development as an independent state. Tim, you've been digging around for us and you're going to lay out the backstory here of how Irish neutrality came about in the first place. 
Yes, yes I am. And this is a real doozy, listeners. So get comfortable and sit back because we've got a story and a half for you here. First of all, Tim, though, we have a really exciting announcement to bring our listeners. We have Uh a new sponsor for the podcast. Yes, we do. Yeah, we're really happy to introduce Irish at Heart, who have really kindly offered all of you listeners an amazing discount code that we are really excited to be able to share with you. I love this partnership. Irish at Heart are a startup business founded by Mary Moore from Dublin in 2019. And basically, if you sign up with them, you get amazing products from local businesses in Ireland at a discount, all while supporting small Irish artisan and craft businesses. Here's how it works. So you sign up at their website and each month they send you a surprise hamper of treasures from Ireland. You can find that website at irish-at-heart.com. That's irishatheart.com with hyphens between each word. We've also put the website address in our episode notes if you just want to follow that link. Each box contains roughly five different items and there'll be stuff like something to eat, maybe something from the house, something to wear, a nice gift. They're all surprises, but they all come from small Irish businesses. And each month, the hamper has a new theme. Mm-hmm. Right. So the theme this month, for instance, is Sunrise Over Ireland's Ancient East, the Land of 5,000 Dawns. And it's full of really gorgeous products from that local area, the east of Ireland, which is, of course, famous for the prehistoric monuments like Newgrange and Noth and Douth. Right. I've had a sneak peek at this box and I can tell you it's just a stunning selection of things. It would make a lovely gift for someone or a treat for yourself. And I think what's really great about this model of Irish at Heart which is that you get all of these things at a really good discount from what you'd have to pay for them if you were to buy them individually, say, in a shop. The typical retail value of what's in the box is about $70. But what you pay as an Irish at Heart subscriber starts from just $44. So basically all the subscribers are like clubbing up, you know, and there's about 3,000 of them now. So you get these really good value prices while supporting homegrown Irish small businesses at the same time. But wait, Naomi, that's not all. There's more. We have an additional discount for you on top of all that. So listeners of the Irish Passport podcast have access to a special discount code that will get you 15% off your first delivery when you subscribe. All you have to do is enter the code Irish Passport, all one word, in the discount bar. That's Irish Passport, all one word, and you'll get 15% off when you sign up on the website irish-at-heart.com. Do go ahead and sign up right away because there's just about a week left to get Ireland's Ancient East box. Uh, Remember, the theme changes every month. Um, From what I've heard, they're selling out really fast. So head on over to the website. We'll have it in the episode description. And if you do it now, you'll be in line to get their very special seasonal Christmas-themed box, which comes out in November. And that sells out every year. But if you subscribe Mm. now, you'll be guaranteed a box. Don't worry if you're listening to this episode later on, uh, sometime in the future. A new box will come out every month and it's always a great time to sign up. I was genuinely saying to Naomi before we started recording that I'm planning to buy a few boxes myself as Christmas presents uh, for my friends and family. Uh, So you better get in there and get them uh, before I do. Uh, Thanks so much to our new sponsors. uh, But let's get back to the topic of our episode, Irish neutrality and its historical roots in the country's colonial past. So, Tim, historically, one of the recurring anxieties of Irish nationalism was the prospect of Irish people being used as cannon fodder in Britain's wars, something that had gone on for centuries. And that's something that very much framed the idea of neutrality after independence. Yeah, absolutely. So this is an anxiety that is common to lots of small countries whose affairs might be enmeshed with those of more powerful, larger neighbours. Uh, Even as far back as the 18th century, the United Irishmen were talking about not wanting to send their soldiers to be to be fighting in Britain's wars. 
More recently, of course, we might think back to James Connolly and the Irish workers' movement during World War I, when the trade union headquarters at Liberty Hall were draped with an iconic banner that read, We serve neither King nor Kaiser, but Ireland. And we should remember, too, that a major element of Irish nationalism during this time was opposition to conscription. And a lot of the rebels who rose up in 1916 in the Easter Rising were those who had refused to fight for Britain during World War I. Yeah, and that huge protest against conscription into the British army left a really long legacy in Irish politics. Uh, James Connolly himself was actually president of the very short-lived Irish Neutrality League back in 1914, and that advocated a neutral policy in Ireland. Uh, Another rebel leader, Roger Casement, also advocated Irish neutrality the year before. So all of this, you know, I suppose it reflects one of the main motivations of Irish nationalism at the beginning of the 20th century, which was never again to fight for the British Empire. Mm. And those sentiments, you know, they stuck around after independence. Um, Even in 1921, during the negotiations of the Anglo-Irish Treaty, Michael Collins and Arthur Griffith both proposed that Ireland should have the option of remaining neutral if Britain was to become embroiled in a war. So when the Free State Constitution was drawn up in 1922, it very carefully included the statement that, I quote, Save in the case of actual invasion, the Irish Free State shall not be committed to active participation in any war without the assent of the Oireachtas. Right. So the idea that there should be a safeguard against being drawn into an imperial war was already there when the Free State came into being. But my understanding Mm. is that in the 1920s, this was a little bit notional. The idea of Mm. military neutrality had actually changed quite a bit after World War I. There was an increased feeling around the world that states needed to invest in collective security. And at this time, lots of formerly neutral states actually changed their neutrality policies, either during or after World War I. Yeah, even despite the Irish Free State's attraction to neutrality, in reality, Britain still maintained naval ships in certain Irish ports in the 1920s, and Westminster could use them for war if it wanted to. Mm. Um, but the legacy of, you know, anti-conscription, that, that didn't go anywhere. And when World War II broke out a few decades later, the whole question of Irish neutrality escalated suddenly and dramatically. Yeah, so somewhat infamously, the official policy of Irish neutrality came into force in 1939, just as the Second Mm -hmm. World War was breaking out around Europe. And this has long been seen as quite a controversial episode in Irish history. It's something that's commonly referred to by Northern Unionists as well as right-wing commentators in the UK. They kind of characterise it as a bit of treachery on the part of the Irish state and a sign of being on the wrong side of history. It's made like an accusation of something shameful. Ireland, you know, refused to join the fight against the Nazis. This moment, however, represents a major crossroads in the history of the Irish Republic. We can only speculate about what might have happened if Ireland had entered the Second World War. Some say it would have completely collapsed the independent state and started a new civil war. Others suggest it was a tragically lost opportunity to end partition and reunite the island. Yeah, there's all sorts of hot takes about this, which surface every now and again. But very few of them take into account the sheer complexity of this moment in Irish history. The whole story is like this really weird high-stakes game of chess. And on either side of that chessboard are two towering figures in the history of these islands, Winston Churchill and Eamon de Valera. Of course. 
Winston Churchill and Eamon de Valera were, of course, the respective leaders of the UK and Ireland during the Second World War. In many ways, these were two men who couldn't have been more different, but both were also iconic national figures and have pretty much dominated understandings of 20th century history in their respective countries. More than that, however, Churchill and de Valera long before the Second World War, actually had their own bitter history of animosity going back decades. Yeah, right. So in this scenario, we see these two old enemies go head to head in a really nasty way. So before we actually get to 1939, I actually want to go back a few decades mm-hmm. and trace out the very, very different trajectories of these two political leaders. Because I think it's pretty important to understand that when it came to World War II, they were looking at the entire world from completely opposing perspectives. Churchill and de Valera were actually only born about eight years apart, but in incredibly different circumstances. So Winston Churchill was literally born in a palace, um, a palace called Blenheim Palace. And to give you an idea of what that means, his childhood home, like not including the grounds, not including the the land, was 28,000 metres squared. So that's (laughs) seven acres of floor space. Yeah, 183 rooms. Like it's just almost incomprehensibly Mm. huge. Like... Uh, To give you an idea, uh, today it's a museum, but the family have kept 46 rooms for themselves, uh, just for their personal use, and like they hardly even take up a quarter of of the actual house. You can go and visit it if if you want. It's got this huge big great hall, it's got a full library, it's got all this manicured land around it, and the Churchill family uh, still live there. This is one of England's old established noble families. They're actually related to the family of Princess Diana, the Spencers. Churchill's father was Lord Randolph Churchill, and he was a descendant of the Dukes of Marlborough, and his mother came from a family of New York millionaires, which was a thing at this time, old nobility marrying very rich Americans. Mm. Helps to keep out such a big house, I imagine. Basically, yeah, exactly. Yeah, they they need the money. Um, The family had also been active in imperial governance for generations, actually. Uh, Churchill's father was Secretary of State for India at one point, Mm -hmm. and his grandfather was Lord Lieutenant of Ireland back in 1876. I've actually been to Bledon Palace, Tim, um, which is Mm. just outside of Oxford. And yeah, it's an enormous Mm. place. Like, it's got columns Mm. of this sort of light-coloured sandy stone and elaborate carvings, and it's got all this land with fountains and forests. Like, it's it's real Downton Abbey stuff is actually the Mm. name Blenheim comes from a military victory and it was built to thank one of Churchill's ancestors for military triumphs for Britain in like various wars and inside it's full of portraits of these ancestors in their military gear so if you can imagine like the child Winston growing up in this palace you know uh, looking at these examples there's pictures of him at the time dressed in all these elaborate imperial style uniforms like he was literally born to rule he was brought up with Mm. the expectation that he would play a role in ruling the global British empire Right, yeah. So this is important to to understand. Now, listeners, I want to take you out of this bucolic country English mansion, Mm. take you across the Atlantic to where Eamon de Valero was born. And that was actually in an orphanage hospital in New York City. So this couldn't be more different. Eamon de Valero's mother was a recent Irish immigrant to New York. She was in her early 20s. Her name was Catherine Cull. And his father, according to records, was also an immigrant. 
he was a Spanish artist named Vivian de Valera, mm. um, but he died before Eamon's first birthday. Now, there, there is speculation as to whether his father and mother were even married. Mm. Um, there doesn't seem to be any records to prove that, and it was always a bit of a controversy in his life. Mm. Um, but whatever the case, little Eamon, when he was still a child, who was actually sent back to Ireland to live with his mother's family because she just couldn't look after him. So he was raised by his grandmother and uncles. And that cottage is also still in existence. You mm. can go and visit that place as well today. Um, but it's a very, very different place uh, from Blenheim Palace, which I suppose isn't difficult. This is a tiny, tiny little cottage, even by the standards of Irish cottages. It's got two little windows at the front, two little windows at the back. It covers just over 30 metres squared. And it sits on just half an acre of land, which even by Irish standards of the time, that was a minuscule farm. So their entire farm, their whole livelihood was, you know, it could fit inside one of the Churchill's living rooms. (laughs) Yeah, basically. I mean, more or less. The family's land was so small that they just actually couldn't feed their animals on it. So they used to take the cattle out to the road and let them eat the grass along the side of the road. Mm. Um, This was called the Long Farm, I think it was called. It was a thing that very, very poor farmers did. But it was illegal So Eamon, when he was a child, he reportedly used to be on the lookout for the RIC, the Royal Irish Constabulary, who would be chasing him around the roads of of County Limerick as he he tried to tend the cows on on the sly. So you can hardly draw a picture of two more different starts to life between these two guys. Yeah, right. And this comes to their upbringing as well. So it's interesting that both of these men were kind of estranged from their parents in Mm -hmm. in very different ways. Winston Churchill was raised mostly by his nanny, apparently, who he later described as, quote, his dearest and most intimate friend. So there's echoes of Jacob Rees-Mogg there. It's so strange. (laughs) Yeah, it's a bit creepy. But he left home at the age of seven. He was sent off to one of Britain's most prestigious boarding schools and he just didn't do well. He wasn't a good student, he wasn't very academically gifted apparently and he ended up just scraping by to pass the entrance exams to Harrow, which is another really famous private school um, near London. Then after that he tried to get into the Royal Military Academy but he wasn't good enough to do that either. He tried twice and he failed twice and he finally got accepted the third time and that allowed him to go travelling around the British Empire to observe military expeditions. So finally, Winston Churchill was on the track for the destiny, which was very much laid out for him at birth. Yeah, right. So Eamon de Valera, on the other hand, you know, his destiny was very, very unclear. He grew up surrounded by political agitation. Uh, The land war, of course, had just thrown rural Ireland into total chaos around this time. And small tenant farmers everywhere were launching themselves into nationalist politics. So as a child, Eamon went to the local parish school, which was incredibly overcrowded and underfunded. It was it was so small that half the boys had to stand up all day and the other half were sitting four to a table around the desks. Yeah, so, you know, a very, very different scene. But he did very well, apparently. And his teachers um, recommended to his family that he should, you know, go to a better school and make use of his of his academic gifts. So they scraped their money together and they sent him to a better school in uh, the nearby town of Charleville. And they did well because he did really well there. He won a scholarship which allowed him to attend Black Rock College. His uncles tried, wanted to take the money from the scholarship because they felt they were owed it for feeding him. <laughs> uh, but he, he he managed to convince the priest just to send the money away. And he went off uh, to this really competitive Catholic boarding school. 
And that's where he got the name Dev, by the way. Apparently Irish people had a hard time pronouncing Devalera, which is hard to imagine now. Yeah. Um, but he excelled at Black Rock as well. He came out top of his class and that got him another scholarship. And then he got more and more scholarships that paid his way through university. And he eventually became a maths teacher in Dublin. Maths teacher is a classic start for an Irish politician, it must be said. <laughs> <laughs> it's true, yeah. Kind of setting the tone there, actually, yeah. Current Taoiseach included. Yeah, exactly. Right, listen, the, the reason I'm going through all this is just, I think it's really important to understand how these two men thought about themselves and how they styled themselves, you know, as national figureheads. Like, Churchill's authority is fundamentally based on this idea of him as a born leader. He's got blue blood. He comes from generations of statesmen and politicians. His dad is a politician. He's He's been to all the right schools. He's had all the right training to become a model British prime minister in theory anyway. And he very much assumed that. He assumed that everyone should show him respect and like be deferential towards him. He felt like it was owed to him. And on the other hand, Eamon de Valera kind of you know, throughout his life, he really milked his own childhood. He milked this idea that he had to pull himself up by his bootstraps, that he had no one to help him, that, you know, that he, he came from nothing but reached the top through his own wiles and ingenuity because he was so intelligent. You know, he loved that idea mm. about himself. And both of them in their own way, you know, they put a lot of effort into fabricating a personal mythology. This is a fascinating thing, actually, to look into. When I was working as a journalist in the UK, I wrote a little bit about the national kind of cult of Churchill, which also exists to a certain extent in the United States. And I looked into how this was deliberately cultivated by the man while he was alive. And it was very, very crafted, you know, very deliberately with a lot of effort through extensive writing of biographies, which involved all these assistants, writing assistants and, and researchers and so on. He very carefully curated and formed his own image with an eye to his legacy, going from everything to the way he was photographed to, you know, the kinds of ideas that we have about his personality now. Many of these were created by the man himself. He was like a kind of very successful influencer of his day. Right, yeah. And and Dev did more or less the same thing. You know, he was in power for ages. He was Taoiseach for ages. And then he was president for ages, like decades mm. after uh, during the 20th century. And he, he used that time to craft an image of himself too. Like, for instance, he transformed that school. Remember that little school in, in Brewery with the kids at the desk and standing up? He, he went back there and he transformed it into a museum celebrating himself. <laughs> and he just, he just gave them loads of his stuff, like his suitcase and stuff, like <laughs> to put on display as a museum. Today, of course, Eamon de Valera is a seriously controversial character in Irish history. There's loads we don't have time to go into, but we'll get around into the future. But in his own day, he very much did maintain that narrative of himself as a national hero. Yeah, he has somewhat of a contested legacy today, but undoubtedly he was the towering statesman of the 20th century in Ireland. And part of this was founded on the role that he played in the 1916 Easter Rising. Um, it's interesting because during the rebellion itself, you know, the role that de Valera played wasn't particularly significant. Um, the building that he held wasn't central to the fighting and he kind of largely sat around for a week. But so many of the other leading figures of the rebellion died during the revolutionary period, which kind of left him the last man standing in some respects. And he used this um, idea of 1916, the Easter Rising and so on, to build the fundaments of the Irish state and his own 
legacy, his own myth, by mythologizing all of this deliberately. So within a few decades, both these men would become political leaders of their respective countries. But once again, their trajectories, like you kind of mentioned there, Naomi, couldn't have been more different. So in Britain, Churchill came back from his gallivanting around the empire, and he just kind of decided to try his hand at politics like his dad, like this was a natural progression for him. So he just went into Westminster, he quickly got positions, pretty high positions. Uh, He became Home Secretary, he was Minister of State for War, he was Secretary of State for the Colonies, and he just kept rising through the ranks. Meanwhile in Ireland, Eamon de Valera came to power by way of violent revolution. Um, As Mm. I was saying, he fought in the Easter Rising, managed to escape execution, unlike uh, most of the leaders. This was probably because he was American-born, and the British government was nervous about potentially executing a U.S. citizen. He then headed the provisional Irish government during the War of Independence from 1919 to 1921, and that's when he came head-to-head with Churchill. Yeah, right. So Churchill was the Secretary of State for War during the Irish War of Independence. And of course, it was also Churchill who sponsored the deployment of the notorious Black and Tans into Ireland. That's a a brutal auxiliary force who were sent in to crush the rebel government. This is a really interesting aspect to the Churchill myth, which is that he's remembered totally differently in Ireland compared to in Britain. So in Ireland, Mm. he's very deeply associated with his role in deploying the Black and Tans. And these forces remain infamous to this day for arbitrary reprisals against civilians. Um, So there are still family stories passed from grandparents to grandchildren about their acts of indiscriminate murder, large-scale arson, burning of cities. They're remembered as hooligans, thugs, um, who were, you know, getting crazy off alcohol and terrorising and persecuting the population, whether that was men, women or children, with just totally needless cruelty and without restraint. This was also a moment when the Irish situation was a real source of humiliation for the UK on the international stage. Even with the black and tans like savaging the country, the British just couldn't manage to regain control over Ireland at this point. And de Valera in particular was like this famously wily character, you know, in, in on the Irish side who, who kept evading them and escaping from British prisons dressed as women and like <laughs> things like that that like made headlines, you know, that didn't make the British government look good. And even worse, de Valera around this time actually travelled to America, where he toured around major cities like Washington and Chicago, and he was just denouncing the British Empire publicly, lobbying American politicians to officially recognise the Irish Republic. At certain points, de Valera had crowds of up to 50,000 people in America coming to hear him speak. And by the end of his tour, he had actually managed to raise a whopping Five million dollars to finance the Irish rebel government, you know, which drove unionists in Westminster completely crazy. Like that was astronomical money for the time. Right. And this is when he made that speech we mentioned in our Ireland and India episode where he spoke about those two countries uniting to overthrow the British Empire. Um, So Mm. I'm guessing, you know, Churchill must have loved that. Yeah, right. Like not not one bit like Churchill hated de Valera like he hated him so much like the two of them hated each other Churchill used to call him devil era that was his nickname for him very clever um like this feeling was definitely mutual like each one of these men saw the other one 
as basically representing everything they despised. You know, on the one hand, you have Churchill, this self-styled man of empire who sees Britain as this bastion of civilization and progress. And then you have de Valera, like this Irish-American revolutionary who has only ever experienced the British Empire as a violent, oppressive regime, and who has pretty much devoted himself to dismantling it in any way he can. I think we should describe, actually, what these two men looked like, because even their, (laughs) you know, physical appearance was completely in contrast. Like, famously, Churchill was like a squat kind of bulldog man with a (laughs) balding hairline and a big pair of bulging eyes. And meanwhile, de Valera was really tall and thin. He was a beanpole, uh, so much so that his nickname was The Long Fella. And he had these really long, (laughs) gangly arms and legs and a very long nose and face with a shock of thick black hair that he probably inherited from his Spanish father. And he was never seen without a quite intellectual-looking pair of round, wire-framed glasses. Now, over the course of the early 20th century, not only would de Valera face the wrath of Churchill in the form of the blackened tans, but Churchill was also one of the main negotiators of the Anglo-Irish Treaty, which famously de Valera hated so much that it led to a civil war in Ireland. Yeah, this Anglo-Irish Treaty was the peace agreement that ended the War of Independence in 1922. It also led to the establishment of the Free State in the 26 southern countries of Ireland. De Valera was part of the faction that rejected this treaty for a number of reasons. A, it stopped short of granting Ireland full republic status. B, it resulted in the partition of the island into north and south. And C, the UK still held on to a limited military presence in some of Ireland's seaports. Exactly. And this last detail is actually really important. So let's consider that for a moment. Uh, One of the main reasons that Britain had always been so reluctant to grant Ireland independence was because Ireland was, and always had been, a highly vulnerable flank in Britain's military defences. Of course, this was one of the main reasons why Ireland was colonised in the first place. The island itself Mm. was geopolitically dangerous for Britain. Over the centuries, Britain's enemies had repeatedly tried to invade using Ireland as a backdoor. And the fact that Ireland was, for so long, politically hostile to Britain, not to mention that it was a majority Catholic country and thus aligned with the UK's rivals in France and Spain, it made it all especially threatening. Yeah, so one big condition of the Anglo-Irish peace treaty was that the UK was going to be allowed to continue using ports in the Free State, three ports, the ports of Cove, Bearhaven and Loch Swilly. And they would use these as military bases to ensure that the UK could continue to protect Britain's national security from foreign invasion, uh, potentially through Ireland. So keep that in mind, because we're definitely coming back to that in a moment. Right. Back to de Valera, um, as soon as the Free State was founded in 1922, de Valera starts plotting a way to get into power and rip up this hated Anglo-Irish treaty. A few years after independence, he founded his own new political party, which he called Fianna Fáil, and which of course dominated Irish politics for decades to come. And by 1932, probably to the horror of people like Churchill, uh, de Valera got himself elected Taoiseach of the independent Irish state. Right. And famously, he almost immediately goes to town on Ireland's constitutional status. Yeah, absolutely. He really tears into it. Like now he's holding the reins of power and he just decides to go full throttle. So the first thing he does is he pounces on Ireland's debt repayments to the UK. 
Now, Naomi, you might remember back in our destructive unionism episode, we discussed the policy of constructive unionism. And that was where the British government facilitated this huge transfer of land to Irish tenant farmers uh, towards the end of the 19th century. Yes, this was where Westminster helped Irish farmers to buy their rented plots from their landlords. And it was all part of a strategy to direct investment and favours towards the Irish public to essentially combat rising nationalism at the time. Right. And obviously, of course, it didn't work. (laughs) Like the union was not saved in Ireland. And now that Ireland was no longer in the UK, basically Westminster wanted that money back. Mm. They were like, according to the terms of the peace treaty, in fact, Irish farmers in the free state now had to pay about four million pounds a year in taxes to the British government um, until all those subsidies had been returned, which, you know, was pretty crazy since like nobody asked for this. Like this was Mm. a strategy that Westminster decided to do. But like, hey, I'm guessing De Valera was having none of it. He was definitely having none of it. Uh, So the minute he got into power, not only did he turn around to Westminster and say, we're not paying you anymore for this. He said, in fact, you're going to pay us. We demand £400 million as reparations for the 100 years that you spent overtaxing us while we were part of the union. So it was like, you know, if anyone owes anyone money here, you definitely owe us money and like infinitely more money uh, than that. Oh my God, this is a seriously ballsy move. It really is. And the UK, you know, was a bit stopped in its tracks. Like De Valera had just cut them off from four million pounds a year. They immediately slap a 20% import tax on any goods coming into the UK from the Irish Free State. So like, they're basically like, you know, see how you like that. We're going to starve you out. But what they weren't counting on was just how stubborn De Valera was. He didn't budge at all. Instead, he put tariffs on goods entering the Free State from the UK. So now, basically, we have a trade war. Mm. There's just uh, suddenly there's this like enormous trade war going on between the UK and the Irish Free State. And this, by the way, like almost completely destroyed the Irish economy. But de Valera didn't give up. He didn't care. He just kept firm for six years. Mm. He kept those tariffs up for six years. They knew he was serious about this, I suppose. During this same period, de Valera was also stripping the Irish constitution of any remaining references to links with Britain. In 1936, he drew up a whole new constitution for the Free State, which was basically designed to drive the British government out of their minds. It relayed claim to Northern (laughs) Ireland, for example. It also removed the oath of allegiance to the British monarch, which had been a really despised item in Ireland. It declared Irish to be the national language of the state and it named the President of Ireland as the highest office uh, in the land. Uh, De Valera's constitution also changed the name of the Irish Free State to ERA, which is the Irish for Ireland. And of course, Irish speakers would have understood that to mean the whole island. So we have an incredibly disruptive trade war roaring away. And in the meantime, the constitutional status quo is being completely rehauled. But Tim, how does this all link into the topic of neutrality? Right. Okay. So, so listeners, stay with us here. While the trade war was really devastating for Ireland, it was also devastating enough to the UK economy that Westminster really wanted to resolve it as soon as possible. Mm. You know, remember Ireland was traditionally used as this like breadbasket for the UK. Uh, so they were losing out now on all those imports. So. Eventually, in 1938, the British and the Irish governments come to a settlement and de Valera really plays hardball in the settlement. So what he says is he's going to hand over a one-off fee 
of £10 million to the UK. So no more repayments. You just take these £10 million and no more repayments of debts. So that's on the one side, right? Mm -hmm. However, on the flip side, in return for this, Westminster had to hand back control of its three naval ports in the Free State, Bearhaven and, and, and Cove and all those. Um, so, you know, this was an absolutely huge trade-off. Mm. Now, this is something that Westminster knew would have to happen at some point. They knew they couldn't keep the British Army in the Free State forever. But, you know, this was pretty big still. Like, not only had de Valera gained complete military control now of the Free State, but he basically held the keys to British national security. Spike Island and the adjoining Cork Harbour defences have been handed over to the custody of Ireland. This is the first stage in pursuance of the defence provisions of the agreement between the British government and Mr de Valera. Amid scenes of the utmost friendliness, the British troops departed on a tender for the motor vessel that was to take them to Fishguard. Mr. de Valera arrived at Spike in a launch and made an inspection of a guard of honour. And so the defence of Cork, after 150 years, passes into the keeping of its native land. So de Valera has essentially bought back the treaty ports and in doing so, he's secured himself a massive bargaining chip for any future war. Yeah, that's exactly what he's done. And one person in the British government went absolutely berserk when he found out what had happened with this. And that was, of course, Winston Churchill. OK, let's hear it from the horse's mouth. Here's what Churchill said in his speech about this to the British House of Commons in 1938. We are told that we have ended the age-old quarrel between England and Ireland. But that is clearly not true, because Mr. de Valera has said he will never rest until partition is swept away. Therefore, the real conflict has yet to come. These ports are, in fact, the sentinel towers of the Western approaches. Now we are to give them up, unconditionally, to an Irish government led by men. I do not want to use hard words whose rise to power has been proportionate to the animosity with which they have acted against this country. But what guarantee do you have that Southern Ireland, or the Irish Republic as they claim to be, and you do not contradict them, will not declare neutrality if we are engaged in a war with some powerful nation? Under this agreement, it seems to me, that Mr. de Valera's government will, at some supreme moment of emergency, demand the surrender of Ulster as an alternative to declaring neutrality. This is really interesting. Um, so Churchill mm. is basically predicting that de Valera is going to use neutrality as like a weapon against Britain in future, and that he might even use it as a like, tool to bring about a united Ireland. Yeah, it is interesting. And it's, it's even more interesting in a minute because it, it kind of gives an insight into what Churchill would have done if he were de Valera himself. <laughs> yeah. um, you know, which is, which is kind of interesting. Um, we'll see, we'll see that in a moment. Um, he was right to be worried. You know, this was exactly what Britain had feared for centuries. Ireland was going to become a vulnerable flank now in any future war. And the year is crucial. This is 1938. Mm. So the Second mm -hmm. World War was already on the horizon and it broke out the following year. 
And the following year, when the Second World War broke out, what did De Valera do but immediately declare neutrality? Mm. So here's what he announced to the Associated Press on the outbreak of war in 1939. He said, The desire of the Irish people and the desire of the Irish government is to keep our nation out of the war. The aim of government policy is to maintain and to preserve our neutrality in the event of war. The best way, and the only way, to secure our aim is to put ourselves in the best position possible to defend ourselves, so that no one can hope to attack us or violate our territory with impunity. We know, of course, that should attack come from a power other than Great Britain, Great Britain, in her own interest, must help us to repel it. Mm, interesting. So, yeah, this is really interesting. I mean, it's very interesting how he's not ruling out that Great Britain might invade Ireland in this um, <laughs> in this scenario. And he's also saying that really it is in the interest of Great Britain, A, not to do that, and B, to kind of um, protect Ireland as a neutral state. Now, there's a few reasons why de Valera wanted to do this, how, how he justified this decision. Mm-hmm. So number one, right, he, he believed that if Ireland openly entered the war with the Allies, it would be immediately invaded by the Germans. You know, remember, it is the vulnerable flank into Britain. And its defence forces were really crap. Like, they were really minuscule at that point, and they wouldn't have been able to hold up to invasion. Okay, that makes sense, yeah. Right, yeah. So, number two is that he thought that if he turned around and said to the people of Ireland, you have to fight for the British now, after just having lived through the War of Independence, the Black and Tans, the Civil War, all of those decades of fighting for, for independence from Britain... He just thought that the whole country would collapse into total anarchy. Mm. And when you consider how bad the civil war had been, you know, you can see why he was so worried about that. Like, that Mm. was about the oath of allegiance, and that had almost ripped the country to shreds. Right. Number three. (laughs) Reason number three. Really, Ireland was a wreck, you know? It it was a mess. Like, this is a post-colonial country. Like, it it had been undergoing resource extraction from Britain, you know, for for a century. Mm. It didn't have anything left. The people had were still kind of recovering, you know, from from the after effects of that massive famine, even though we're almost 100 years later. Mm. The population was still in free fall, racked by immigration, etc., etc., etc. And the recent six-year trade war, you know, like, had really not helped that. So de Valera believed that if this country in this current state had to suffer bombardments and bombs and invasions that the independent state would just have no chance to survive. You know, it's it's worth mentioning that, like, he was generally of the view that small states were always the losers in wars like this. When they got involved with wars between big powers around them, they just never won or came out well from the situation. Yeah, and I mean, having no particular army to speak of, and yet, you know, joining the British side, I'm sure would mean inviting in the British army to um, reinforce it, you know, which would essentially, mm. yeah, be it would be a step to giving up independence in the eyes of many after having fought Mm. for it. And I'd say as well, like another massive reason was that, you know, voters shared these concerns. Neutrality was extremely popular in large segments of the Irish population. And we have to remember that, you know, people on the ground, like the state itself, were struggling just to survive at this point. So it came to be that in this way that neutrality was declared and this period of Irish history became known as 
the emergency. Yeah, so the the emergency was this really weird time in Ireland. De Valero really wanted to fully enact a neutral policy to the letter. And that meant that Ireland had to impose really extensive censorship of the media. So newspapers and radios, you know, they recounted dispatches from both sides of the war, but they didn't comment on either side. Weather forecasts weren't broadcast anymore on the radio in case they helped one side or the other. That's so strange. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's actually the reason why the word war wasn't used at all in an, in an official capacity. It was considered, you know, to be too biased one way or the other. Mm. Um, so they used the word emergency instead of war. And that's why it became known as the emergency. It's so interesting. I just thought that was one of the like, classic Irish euphemism or something, but apparently not. Yeah, it's a funny one. I, yeah, that was something I learned in the research for this as well for the first time. Uh, so within a year of the war breaking out, of course, who should take over as Prime Minister of the UK but one Winston Leonard Spencer Churchill? Of course. And needless mm. to say, Churchill was furious with this policy of neutrality. Furious that de Valera as well just wouldn't budge on the issue. By this point, remember, it's 1940. British boats are being bombed in their hundreds by German forces the Irish ships around them were unharmed and they were identified as neutral with the big word ERA painted in really big letters on the side. Instead of engaging in the war, Ireland's navy spent it essentially rescuing survivors of sea attacks, um, survivors from both sides. This was pretty important, actually, because the forces that were actually engaged in the war usually didn't have time to stop and rescue survivors. Now, Churchill coming to power at this point, it's interesting that he was actually worried about exactly the same thing as de Valera. Mm. Um, His big worry was that the Nazis would invade Ireland. Of course, he wasn't worried about what would happen to Ireland in that scenario. He was worried about them gaining a strategic position to invade Britain. I see. And what's crazy about this as well is like Ireland people were also worrying about Britain invading Ireland to prevent Germany from invading Ireland. So just, you know, to kind of get there Mm. first. So de Valera's government is in the eye of a storm, essentially, of military strategy. And, you know, whichever way you look at at it, all roads seem to look like they're going to lead to an invasion of Ireland one way or another. And this, in turn, actually just fortified de Valera's commitment to neutrality because he saw that as the best option to just keep Ireland out of this. Yeah, the whole, it's a it's a really interesting moment. And like I said, it kind of turns into this game of chess. Uh, there is this point where bombs start raining down on Dublin and people are really genuinely don't know whether it's British bombs or German bombs because an invasion from either one were fairly equally likely at this Gosh. stage. Then, however, something really extraordinary happens. In 1940, Churchill sends his health secretary, Malcolm MacDonald, to Dublin, to the government, with this offer. The offer says that if de Valera agrees to give up his policy of neutrality, if he agrees to join the war and reopen the Free State ports to the British army, that Churchill would hand Northern Ireland back over to the Free State in return. Partition would be over, the island would be unified under de Valera's government. This is one of the big what-if moments of Irish history, right? We know Mm. that ultimately de Valera did not take Churchill up on this offer, obviously. But, you know, it's one of those really interesting moments where you can speculate about how differently things could have gone for Ireland if he had. 
Yeah, like there's there's so much to unpack about this offer even being made in the first place. I like what strikes me, uh, I suppose, coming at this with hi- the hindsight that we have mm. is just how consistently ready the UK government has always seemed to be to like to just use Northern Ireland as as a pawn or or like a chip, you know, when it wants something that it can't have, like. The Tories at this point had spent the last few decades like whipping up unionists in Northern Ireland against the like evil free state, you know, and now they're just handing over the whole region without asking anyone there, like, you know, who lives north of of the border. It's pretty remarkable, a kind of cavalier just throwing it around the place like this. It's also like a really interesting sort of reversal to what Churchill himself predicted in his own speech in the House of Commons when he thought that mm. de Valera would use neutrality as a chip to gain control of Northern Ireland. So it ultimately was actually Churchill himself who ended up offering Northern Ireland as a strategy to get what he wanted, which it kind of, you know, it makes you wonder about his thinking about this, like how he, had he been planning to use this as a pawn the entire time? Um but there's another aspect to this offer, of course. Like, how feasible was this offer? How real was it? Like, would Britain have ultimately followed through, you know, once the war was over? Like, would British forces have withdrawn? Also, like, giving Northern Ireland over like this against the will of its unionist majority at this time? Like, I mean, that's going to be complicated to manage, to say the least. Like, would you have mm. would you have seen another civil war breaking out? Yeah, right. And that is the big question. Would Britain follow through? Yeah. You know, would it actually keep its word? And this was the fatal flaw in Churchill's offer. Like, no one in Ireland believed the British government anymore, mm. like if they ever had. In this scenario, de Valera would have had to accept Churchill's word on this. And for him and most people in Ireland at this stage, Churchill's word just wasn't worth very much, if anything. De Valera also knew, yeah, exactly, that any such unification was going to be immensely complicated. Mm. It might probably have involved um, some co- form of acceptance from the Northern Irish government at the time. And if that was going to come into it, then it would have been practically impossible since the border had been drawn specifically to ensure a huge unionist majority who would never go along with this willingly. So you could say that for De Valera, this offer was pretty much dead in the water. Yeah, it, it was. It was It was rejected almost immediately and everyone was just back to square one. And by the way, no one else in the UK or Ireland even knew that this had happened. Mm. Uh, the, the fact that Churchill offered to hand over Northern Ireland didn't become public knowledge until decades later in the 1970s. Right, with the release of the files and that, it's fascinating. And of course, mm. at this point, the war, uh, you know, just gets worse and worse. Uh, there were several points where it really looked like Britain was on the losing side. After the mm. Luftwaffe attacks of July 1940, Winston Churchill publicly blamed Irish Free State for the extent of damage that Britain had sustained. He claimed that, you know, if the UK had control of Irish seaports, they could have defended themselves. And um, he went on once again to publicly call for the ports to be given back to Britain. A few months later, then in 1941, Churchill threatened to introduce conscription to Northern Ireland. And this was really a way of antagonising de Valera. Yeah, it really was. De Valera, remember, absolutely considered Northern Ireland still part of his country. You know, the people of Northern Ireland were his countrymen. And he saw this as Churchill forcing Irish people into a British war against their will. Uh, On the 26th of May 1941, he wrote to Churchill uh, saying this. 
The conscription of the people of one nation by another revolts the human conscience. No fair-minded man anywhere can fail to recognize in it an act of oppression upon a weaker people, and it cannot but damage Britain herself. The six counties have towards the rest of Ireland a status and a relationship which no act of Parliament can change. They are part of Ireland. They have always been part of Ireland, and their people, Catholic and Protestant, are our people. Then, in 1941, of course, the attack on Pearl Harbour in the United States ramped things up even further. It raised the spectre of America entering the war, which was going to be a huge boost for the Allies. It would also mean that Churchill had the upper hand over the Irish Free State, because it would no longer be so strategically important to the British Army. This is pretty wild, actually. Um, within five hours of the attack on Pearl Harbour, Churchill had sent a telegram to de Valera. Now, this telegram arrives in the middle of the night. It, mm. People have speculated that maybe Churchill was drunk, that he actually was just so elated by this news of, of Pearl Harbour. He was so excited that he went and did this. But, I mean, it is fascinating by itself that the first thing he thought of doing was sending a telegraph to Eamon de Valera, you know? Like, there were such bigger fish to fry, but he's kind of... Mm. This is his little bugbear. So, like, the telegram is bizarre. It arrives at half past midnight on the 8th of December, 1941. This is the wording. Now is your chance. Now or never. A nation once again. I'm very ready to meet you at any time. That's so interesting. So it's like, okay, mm. come on, let's join the war. Let's go and win it. Like, is it possible that, like, Churchill actually got drunk and just decided to sort of give away Northern Ireland? Like, again, this would be the second time in one year. Yeah, I mean, well, I mean, this is what a lot of people think this was. And this is definitely what de Valera thought that Churchill was saying. It seems mm. pretty clear that that's what he's trying to say, even mm. though it's in this strange, ambiguous wording. Maybe, like, he had forgot that he already offered this and got turned down. Who knows? Who knows? But whatever the case, I mean, de Valera, if he had turned down an official offer, he, he was hardly going to accept this drunk telegram as, you know, <laughs> as dependable word uh, from Churchill. Yeah, and it is really strange. Like, the words, a nation once again, it's almost like trolling. Yeah, it is, isn't it? Yeah, it's strangely kind of, yeah, it is trolling. There's no better word for it. Nothing ever seems to have been said about this, like, thing again. So I just wondered if Churchill wake up with a headache, thinking like, oh, God, like, what did I do last night? Like, uh... Just trying to give away Northern Ireland again. Again, like exactly for the second time in a year, like you said, Naomi. This kind of goes on for the rest of the war. It's probably worth mentioning, by the way, that even though de Valera may makes this big show about like following neutrality policy to the letter, in reality, behind the scenes, Ireland was secretly helping the anti-German forces all the time. Like, for example... Even though it wasn't officially providing weather forecasts, we now know that the Irish government was secretly sending weather forecast information to the Allies. We know actually that it was partly because of a secret Irish weather report that the D-Day landings were even able to go ahead. Mm. So, you know, this was some pretty important intelligence. We also know that Irish ships were reporting sightings of German U-boats to London when they saw them and that they were allowing British ships to use Irish waters and even to put mines, bombs in Irish waters and, and just kind of overlooking it. Mm. Um, the Dublin government also gave refuge to thousands of women and children who had been evacuated from London during the Blitz. And there was also thousands and thousands more who fled across uh, the border from Northern Ireland uh, during the Blitz there. Mm. Uh, they also sent fire brigades up when Belfast was suffering air raid attacks. 
The air raid attacks on Belfast really brought Ireland's neutrality under really close scrutiny in both Dublin and London because Belfast suffered really badly from Nazi bombings. About 900 people were killed in German air raids, which is really big for the population of the city, and about 1,300 buildings were destroyed. Dublin also suffered from German air attacks, but it was really nothing in comparison to the extent of the damage in Northern Ireland. This in itself created a new kind of cleavage between North and South because lots of people harboured resentment against the Dublin government for not having joined the war. Interestingly, even though the Irish state was officially neutral, many, many Irish people still actually joined the British army to fight in the war. So they numbered about 80,000 you know, people who in, enlisted in what is now the Republic, according to the historian uh, Richard Doherty, and an additional 52,000 enlisted from the North. And many of those people would have crossed the border from the South in order to sign up. Mm, Right. Now, during the war, it was actually known in Dublin and in London that the Nazis had produced a detailed plan to invade Neutral Ireland. Uh, It was called Operation Green. It's now believed that this was probably just a scare tactic to try and rattle the Allies. But perhaps more interesting than Operation Green was another plan, Plan W, which was drawn up secretly by the Irish and British governments. And that basically planned out that if the Nazis did um, invade Ireland, that the uh, British-Irish military defence, a joint defence, would come together um, to, to battle the occupation. So, you know, that had to be top secret because that of, of course, went against the neutral policy too. That is so interesting. Um, you can still mm. see remnants from this time in the Irish landscape, perhaps most famously the huge era signs along the coast. They were written in 12-metre letters using whitewashed stones, and they're actually still visible in the landscape. Some of them are currently being restored. These were signals to aircraft that they were flying over neutral territory, and it's possible as well that they were also used as strategic navigation tools by the Allies. Like we said earlier, once America gets involved in the war, Ireland just wasn't that strategically important anymore, and most countries in the war just kind of forget about it. Uh, But two people who absolutely did not forget about it were de Valera and Churchill. Like, Mm. they just kept on harping at each other long after this. For de Valera, of course, the huge international pressure to renege, for him to renege on his policy of neutrality, it just only made him dig his heels in even further. Because for him, this had become this hugely symbolic thing. It it consolidated Ireland in people's minds as a country that was no longer under the thumb of the British Empire. And, you know, in real terms, in many ways, it really did sweep away any lingering sense that the independent state was still in the gambit of UK authority, you know. Mm. Um, De Valera was very aware of how powerful that was, you know, for Irish people. And it also kind of lent a whole new sense of legitimacy to, you know, ERA or you know the 26 counties. So De Valera held out on neutrality to the bitter end. Somewhat notoriously, he actually took the policy to somewhat controversial extreme once the war was over. When Adolf Hitler died, De Valera uh, officially expressed his condolences to the German ambassador. Apparently, this was regular protocol when the head of state with a delegation to Ireland died. Uh, But in this context, it really caused international outrage. Like at this stage, the crimes of the Third Reich were already public knowledge and no other Western nations that had this protocol did anything like this. So everyone was very shocked at this action. 
Yeah, it it was a pretty stupid move, really, on his part. And whatever way you look at it, it was it was an insane thing to do. Mm. Uh, no one really knows what was going through his mind. It's often surmised that this was just another way for him to hammer home Ireland's neutrality to the bitter end. Um, but whatever the case, it backfired. His mm. own government was completely baffled by the decision. And like you said, it drew international criticism and criticism from his own supporters. He's basically been criticised for it ever since, uh, both within Ireland mm. and around the world. Now, meanwhile, back in London, Churchill had no intention of letting go of any of this. The fact that Ireland had held out against pressure from the UK, I suppose it was a pretty big blow to his ego, mm. you know, like... And once the war was over, he just kind of went on this, like, angry little tirade against de Valera. Like, it's kind of embarrassing. You like to hear him do it. You know, the war is even over now, like, for God's sake. He did this in his victory speech, you know, which shows how much it must have been playing on his mind, you know. Mm. So in May 1945, he just uses these minutes of his victory speech to lay into Ireland. And I think you can really hear his, like, personal animosity for de Valera coming through. Uh, let's take a, a listen to that now. The sense of envelopment, which might at any moment turn to strangulation, lay heavy upon us. We had only the northwestern approach between Ulster and Scotland, through which to bring in the means of life and to send out the forces of war. Owing to the action of Mr. de Valera, so much at variance with the temper and instinct of thousands of southern Irishmen, who hastened to the battlefront to prove their ancient valour, the approaches which the southern Irish ports and airfields could so easily have guarded were closed by the hostile aircraft and U-boats. This was indeed a deadly moment in our life. And if it had not been for the loyalty and friendship of Northern Ireland, we should have come to we should have been forced to come to close quarters with Mr. de Valera or perish forever from the earth. However, with the restraint and poise to which I say a history will find few parallels, His Majesty's government never laid a violent hand upon them, though at times it would have been quite easy and quite natural. And we left the de Valera government to frolic with the Germans and later with the Japanese representatives to their heart's content. It's an amazing listen. Like in this speech, Churchill is essentially saying that he could have invaded Ireland and forced it into the war if he wanted to, but he didn't. And thus, you know, Britain should be congratulated for the restraint that it showed towards Ireland, even though Ireland had been so treacherous and disloyal, like we never laid a violent hand upon them, you know, which at times would have been quite easy and quite natural. Natural, for example, I don't know, there's something about that very Mm. sinister, like, and also these descriptions about Ireland frolicking with the Germans and the Japanese, like I can really see the early origins of this enduring myth about Ireland's place in the war. Yeah, absolutely, actually. I didn't think about that. He kind of set the tone for the same mm-hmm. criticisms that we see kind of being like trotted out uh, still today from the right wing in the UK. Essentially, I, I see this as Churchill just trying to put the Irish back in their place, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, you can tell he's furious that de Valera didn't 
do what he wanted to, that he couldn't kind of bully de Valera into submission. And now he's kind of rewriting history to say, oh, oh, we could have, you know, like we could have made you do what we wanted if we, if we wanted to. Mm. We just didn't feel like it at the time, you know, but we could have, you know, it seems very petty. And of, uh, yeah, of course, Churchill would have known that he was pushing buttons in Ireland with this idea that the Brit- British, you know, showed restraint towards Ireland. Remember, this was only mm. 20 years since he himself had sent in the Black and Tans to terrorise the country and subjected citizens to years of intense and indiscriminate violence. Yeah, exactly. Like, he must have known this would cause uproar in Ireland. You know, people were outraged in Ireland when they heard this. And there was this huge public pressure on de Valera to make an official reply. Mm. And you can kind of tell why people wanted de Valera to make an official reply, because they knew he'd do a good job of it. Mm. You know, Churchill is known as this famous orator, but to be honest, de Valera is way better than him at speeches. Mm. You know, like he could wipe the floor with him when it comes to making a political speech. And like people in Ireland kind of knew this. Okay, so this is what happened. Three days later, the entire country tuned in their radios to hear de Valera's public broadcast in reply to Churchill. And the, the speech that they heard would become one of the most famous in modern Irish history. So in it, instead of taking the bait, de Valera replies to Churchill's bluster, with this really calm and reasoned language. And he kind of walks Churchill through a hypothetical situation about what Britain might have done if it was in Ireland's place. Let's take a listen to that now. Certain newspapers have been very persistent in looking for my answer to Mr Churchill's recent broadcast. I know the kind of answer I am expected to make. I know the answer that first springs to the lips of every man of Irish blood who heard or read that speech, no matter in what circumstances or in what part of the world he found himself. I know the reply I would have given a quarter of a century ago. But I have deliberately decided that this is not the reply I shall make tonight. I shall strive not to be guilty of adding any fuel to the flames of hatred and passion, which have continued to be fed, promise to burn up whatever is left by the war of decent human feeling in Europe. Allowances can be made for Mr. Churchill's statement, however unworthy, in the first flush of his victory. No such excuse can be found for me in this quiet atmosphere. There are, however, some things which it is my duty to say, some things which it is essential to say. I shall try to say them as dispassionately as I can. Mr. Churchill makes it clear that in certain circumstances he would have violated our neutrality and that he would justify his action by Britain's necessity. It seems strange to me that Mr. Churchill does not see that this, if accepted, would mean that Britain's necessity would become a moral code and that when this necessity was sufficiently great, other people's rights were not to count. It is quite true that other great powers believe in this same code in their own regard and have behaved in accordance with it. That is precisely why we have the disastrous successions of wars. World War number one, World War number two, and shall it be World War number three? Surely Mr. Churchill must see that if his contention be admitted in our regard, 
and like justification can be framed for similar acts of aggression elsewhere. And no small nation adjoining a great power could ever hope to be permitted to go its own way in peace. It is indeed fortunate that Britain's necessity did not reach the point when Mr. Churchill would have acted. All credit to him that he successfully resisted the temptation, which I have no doubt many times assailed him in his difficulties, and to which I freely admit many leaders might have easily succumbed. It is indeed hard for the strong to be just to the weak, but acting justly always has its rewards. By resisting his temptation in this instance, Mr. Churchill, instead of adding another horrid chapter to the already blood-stained record of the relations between England and this country, has advanced the cause of international morality, an important step, one of the most important indeed that can be taken on the road to the establishment of any sure basis for peace. As far as the peoples of these two islands are concerned, it may perhaps mark a fresh beginning towards the realization of that mutual comprehension to which Mr. Churchill has referred and for which he has prayed and for which I hope he will not merely pray but work also, as did his predecessor, who will yet, I believe, find the honor placed in British history which is due to him. And certainly he will find it in any fair record of the relations between Britain and our sailors. That Mr. Churchill should be irritated when our neutrality stood in the way of what he thought he vitally needed, I understand. But that he or any thinking person in Britain or elsewhere should fail to see the reason for our neutrality, I find it hard to conceive. I would like to put a hypothetical question. It is a question I have put to many Englishmen since the last war. Suppose Germany had won the war, had invaded and occupied England, and that after a long lapse of time and many bitter struggles, she was finally brought to acquiesce in admitting England's right to freedom and let England go, but not the whole of England. All but, let us say, the six southern counties. These six southern counties... Those commanding the entrance to the narrow seas, Germany, let us suppose, had singled out and insisted on holding herself with a view to weakening England as a whole and maintaining the security of our communications to the Straits of Dover. Let us suppose Germany was engaged in a great war in which she could show that she was on the side of the freedom of a number of small nations. Would Mr. Churchill as an Englishman who believed that his own nation had as good a right to freedom as any other, not freedom for a part merely, but freedom for the whole, would he, whilst Germany still maintained the partition of his country and occupied six counties of it, would he lead this partitioned England to join with Germany in a crusade? I do not think Mr. Churchill would. Would he think the people of partitioned England an object of shame if they stood neutral in such circumstances? I do not think Mr. Churchill would. Mr. Churchill is proud of Britain's stand alone after France had fallen and before America entered the war. 
could he not find it in his heart? The generosity to acknowledge that there is a small nation that stood alone, not for one year or two, but for several hundred years against aggression. That endured spoliations, famines, massacres in endless succession. That was clubbed many times into insensibility, but that each time on returning consciousness took up the fight anew. A small nation that could never be got to accept defeat and has never surrendered her soul. Mr. Churchill is justly proud of his nation's perseverance against heavy odds. But we in this island are still prouder of our people's perseverance for freedom through all the centuries. We of our time have played our part in that perseverance. And we have pledged ourselves to the dead generations who have preserved intact for us this glorious heritage that we too will strive to be faithful to the end and pass on this tradition unblemished. Many a time in the past there appeared little hope except that hope to which Mr. Churchill referred that by standing fast for a time his own work the tyrant would make some ghastly mistake which would alter the whole balance of the struggle. I sincerely trust, however, that it is not thus our ultimate unity and freedom will be achieved. Though as a younger man, I confess, I prayed even for that, and at times, indeed, saw no other. In later years, I have had a vision of a much nobler and better ending, better for both our peoples and for the future of mankind. For that, I have now been long working. I regret that it is not to this nobler purpose that Mr. Churchill is lending his hand, rather than by the abuse of a people who have done him no wrong. Trying to find an excuse in a crisis like the present for continuing the injustice of the mutilation of our country. I sincerely hope that Mr. Churchill has not deliberately chosen the latter course but if he has, however regretfully we may say it, we can only say, be it so. Meanwhile, even as a partitioned small nation, we shall go on and strive to play our part in the world, continuing unswervingly to work for the cause of true freedom and for peace and understanding between all nations. As a community which has been mercifully spared, from all major sufferings, as well as from the blinding hates and rancors engendered by the present war, we shall endeavor to render thanks to God by playing a Christian part in helping so far as a small nation can to bind up some of the gaping wounds of suffering humanity. I really enjoyed listening to this speech. I mean, you can... It's fascinating to listen in it. De Valera really laying out a sense of Ireland's role in building the peace between nations, which actually endures even today. Like you can understand from this speech why Ireland would go on to join the European Union, which was to emerge in the following years as a post-war peace project designed to stop mm. France and Germany going to war again. And it's it's fascinating to hear and it really characterizes the Irish approach even now as it sits as a temporary elected member of the United Nations Security Council. 
Yeah, like so many things, you know, like this was a moment when De Valera just kind of lays down the foundation of what Ireland is, even is, like as a modern nation. Mm. And like, it's very hard, like even today to shake off those foundations, if, if people even want to. Mm. Um, like he very much kind of laid out this template for what kind of country Ireland would be. And people loved this speech, of course, mm. you know, they, they absolutely adored it. And it explains why he went on to have such success as a leader uh, in Ireland for decades to come. Mm. So I think, Naomi, that in summary, we can kind of consider Irish neutrality as part of two wars. So in terms of the Second World War, it had its own strategic justifications, however arguable they might be. But then at the same time, it formed part of a psychological war between Ireland and the UK about the place of Ireland in the world. Uh, like I said, you know, the neutrality controversy pretty much exploded the idea of Ireland as a dominion or a free state or any kind of entity that owed even symbolic or lip service allegiance to the UK. Mm. And it set the tone for relations between the UK and what would soon become the Irish Republic, basically for the rest of the 20th century. So it's Ireland setting out in no uncertain terms that we are our own country and we make our own decisions mm. here. And we're not following the UK on stuff. Of course, the policy of neutrality remained very firmly in place after World War II, and it's still in force today. And that brings us to the subject of the next episode that we're going to do, which is that we're going to look at neutrality in its current form. So what does it actually mean? What is Ireland's defence strategy? And how is it going to fit into the coming debates in the European Union, uh, which are likely to confront Ireland with some potentially contentious questions in the months and years ahead? Right. So make sure to tune in for that one, because this story just keeps getting more compelling. But until then, that's definitely all from us for this episode. Don't forget, if you like this episode, we continue to post bonus episodes for our subscribers on Patreon. That's patreon.com forward slash the Irish Passport. Thanks again to our sponsors, Irish at Heart. Don't forget to follow the link in the show notes to sign up to get their gorgeous surprise boxes of Irish goods with a special discount if you enter Irish Passport at checkout. And if you want to do something else to support the podcast, something that really helps us is if you share the podcast or leave a nice review on whatever app you use to listen to us. Slong for now. Slong, guys. Slong.